Oh. Uh-huh.
Let's take our Bibles today and turn to Matthew, Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. We are uh, in the month of our missions, and uh, we are excited about that. And so Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 through 20. And we're going to um, take a moment and read just that passage, a very familiar one, but um, we won't be there too awfully long. But again, as we enter into our missions month, as we look forward to our missions conference beginning next Sunday morning, running right on through Wednesday, and then the following Sunday with our faith promise offering that we'll be taking, we uh, want to set the stage, we want to set the tone, we want to uh, begin to kind of direct our attention and our minds toward missions, if you will. And so today I'm going to begin somewhat of a, a mini-series, if you will, probably will last about three weeks. Next Sunday morning I'll pick up with this and the following week as well, and we'll address these areas of missions. We have a great week planned for you next week. I really hope you'll be a part of it. Uh, as Brother uh, Kavanaugh said, I'll be sharing on Sunday morning. That's probably the low point. I mean that. Uh, it's probably the low point. I mean... We have got a set of speakers for you. We're looking forward to it. I want to encourage you especially to plan on being back Sunday night. Sunday night's going to be unique. It's going to be extremely different. Nothing like we've ever done before here. We're going to have, uh, you know, many times as Americans, we send people to the mission field. And on the mission field, many times it takes them time to learn the language. And so what they have to do is they get an interpreter. And they'll preach and the interpreter will interpret what they're preaching. And so the people will sit out in an auditorium like this or in a couple of pews or seats and they'll listen to the interpreter interpret what has been preached. Next Sunday night, you're going to get a chance to know what it feels like to be the ones on the mission field. Not the ones preaching, the ones being taught by the missionaries. So next Sunday night, we're going to have three of our young men. They're young compared to me. Three of our young men in our Spanish ministry that are Bible college students that are planning on uh, beginning new works for the Lord or taking over Spanish ministries, they're going to be preaching Sunday night. Short messages, mind you, short messages, probably 10 minutes apiece. There's going to be three of them, and Brother Rigo is going to interpret for us. And so I'm telling you, it's going to be unlike any service we've ever had here. And I think you're going to enjoy it. These guys are, are passionate. They're fiery. They love the Lord. They're working full-time jobs. They're going up to classes on weekdays up at the uh, college in Cleveland. I mean, they're sacrificing there not only that, but on Fridays they're running down to Dover and trying to get a church started and planted down in Dover. So they're gone Monday, Tuesday nights at school, Wednesday nights here at church, and then they're over there on Friday nights down in Dover, and they're out Saturday on soul winning, often longer than even just the mornings throughout the afternoons. And then they're here all day Sunday doing the work of God as well. You say, that's too much. It is if you're not dedicated like that. I mean, I'm telling you what, these young men are fired up and they're ready to serve God and they want God to do something great with their lives. I'm going to tell you what, we need to be here to support that kind of investment and that kind of dedication. Not only that, but I guarantee you, you're going to be glad you came. And uh, if they're anything like Brother Rigo, got that hot Spanish blood flying through their veins, it's going to be a hot night. Boy, they're going to be fired up. I'm telling you. I, I, listen, I have heard, I've been down in Mexico I don't know what it is. You go ahead, you, you, you say it's, you go ahead and say it's racist, you say whatever you want. But I'm going to tell you something. When I go down there, or when I've ever heard of a man that is truly of, of that descent, they preach like, I mean, I, they, I mean, they preach, buddy. I don't know what it is. They are fiery and they are passionate. Man, I'm going to tell you something. I love that kind of passion. And I'm looking forward to it Sunday night. I think we're going to hear it right out of their heart, right out of their voices. And I'll tell you what, Brother Rigo will do a great job, I'm sure, of, uh, uh, doing the interpreting. And we're going to know what it feels like to be a church on the mission field and have to have somebody come and tell us the gospel because we just don't have anybody in our own hometown to do it. And so that'll be good. That'll be an opportunity that you're not going to want to miss. And uh, so we're, we're looking forward to that. We'll tell you a little bit more about some of that stuff next week. Again, a different speaker each night. We're going to have a good time. We're going to focus our attention on missions on Sunday around the world, basically, so to speak. And then on Monday, we're going to try to more focus it on our local missions. And on Tuesday, we're going to focus it primarily on, uh, you know, those missions that are kind of not just local, but aren't overseas that around us here, kind of, you know. And then finally, Wednesday night, we'll have someone speaking that's been on the mission field for a number of years and knows what it is to pastor as well. 
And we'll give you a little bit more detail about those things as we move forward. But anyway, I want to encourage you to be a part of it. Plan on being here. Matthew chapter 28, verse 19 and 20 today. We're going to be talking about what is missions all about? What is missions about? What's it all about even? And I want to talk to you about that in the next three weeks, basically. And um, we want to begin by going to the scriptures, Matthew chapter 28, verse 19 through 20. The Bible says, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen? Now, you know, this passage is one that is very familiar. If you've been in church any number of years, you've heard this preached or taught. You've heard it referred to, especially when it comes to missions. It's our marching orders, we say. It's our, 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 uh, our go orders. I mean, we're to get out there and we're to reach the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And without a doubt, that's true. And we see that here in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19 and 20. We can look over in the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 8, where it says, But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. Ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. In each case, we see kind of a, a trend here forming. In Matthew, we see at the end, it says, even unto the end of the world. In the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 8, we see unto the uttermost part of the earth. The indication or the, the implication is that we're going to take the gospel around the world, is it not? Today, I want to just talk to you again a little bit about the purpose of missions. And the first aspect that I want to address, and probably end without doubt, is the most important. Is this aspect of to magnify the Lord. To magnify the Lord. The purpose of missions, to magnify the Lord today. And so I want to take you to the Bible, and I'm going to share with you a couple of biblical accounts that reveal the real purpose of missions today. Okay? And we'll see what God will do with it, all right? Let's pray. Father, thank you again for this time together. Lord, what a great Sunday school we had. I, I just walked by and heard the singing taking place uh, as I went to my class this morning. And Lord, what a blessing it was to hear voices being raised to your glory. And Father, I'm sure back in the couple's class and Lord, just uh, upstairs in all the children's classes. And then Father, the teens and right across the board at the singles right on down. Father, we thank you that Father, your word is being shared and sh- being presented, and that, Father, you are being lifted up. Lord, today we ask you to do the same thing in this service. Father, we're praying and begging you, Father, to show up. Now, Father, may you reveal to us the, the, the real purpose of missions, what I believe really lies in this thought of just magnifying you. We love you, Lord. We need you now. We'll thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Joshua and the people of Israel are going to cross into the promised land. Take your Bible, if you would. Look at Joshua chapter 4, please. Joshua chapter 4. For 40 years now, they have wandered aimlessly through the wilderness. Obviously, we are aware that it is a direct result of a failure to obey the Word of God. A failure to comply with God's demands. And as a result of that, for 40 years now, they've been wandering in this wilderness. A generation has passed. And now a new generation has risen. And now Joshua, the new leader, appointed leader of Israel, will lead them into this promised land. In Joshua chapter 4, we're going to see that Israel is going to be exposed to a miracle. And so, right off the bat, we notice verse chapter 3, verse 17. We go back just... That one verse, the final verse of chapter 3, before we get into 4, we note the miracle. Note the miracle here. It says, And the priests that bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the midst of Jordan, and all the Israelites passed over on dry ground until all the people were passed clean over Jordan. Well, I mean to tell you, you say, that sounds a lot like the Red Sea experience. Absolutely. Remember, the other generation has passed off the scene, and now a new generation is forging ahead. 
And God is going to do something very similar with them. He's going to give them a miracle. He's going to allow them to see His mighty hand. He's going to permit them the privilege of seeing Him work in a mighty way. And so there, the priests take the Ark of the Covenant. And as they make their way into that Jordan River, it just just dries up there. And the people go over on dry ground. What a miracle it was. It could not have been done any other way. There's no way in the world that man could have devised a means by which to dry that pathway up. No, this was God supernaturally intervening on behalf of the people, doing a miracle in their sight as they cross over into the promised land that was promised to them so many years prior. We note the memorial, though. Notice chapter 4, verse 7. As they cross over, notice it says, Then ye shall answer them that the waters of Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over Jordan, the waters of Jordan were cut off. And these stones shall be for a memorial unto the children of Israel forever. Notice verse 21. And he spake unto the children of Israel, saying, When your children shall ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What? mean these stones. As they cross over that Jordan, the, 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 uh, God had told Joshua to ensure that the men, one from each tribe, would grab these stones. And ultimately, they erected a, a memorial on behalf of the Lord and on behalf of this event. And they placed those 12 stones in a pile and they created this memorial, a memorial to remind the children of Israel what God had done in their midst. And he says, listen, when your children ask the question, when your children begin to say, hey, what mean these stones? What are they all about? You could say, hey, it's all about what God did for us. When he brought us into this land and he dried the Jordan up and we walked over on dry ground. We see the meaning. Look in chapter 4, verse 23 and 24. There we read. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of Jordan from before you until you were passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up from before us until we were gone over. That all the people of the earth might know the hand of the Lord, that it is mighty, that ye might fear the Lord your God forever. Again, we're looking at a passage here that's interesting because we know what God did for Israel Without a doubt, we see that they were given the privilege and the opportunity to experience a miracle firsthand. God did that for them, obviously. We know that they were the benefactor of that miracle. But I want you to see, really, when we note this, the message of it is, or the meaning of it, goes far beyond just simply what Israel would ultimately get from this. Notice again that it says here, That all the people of the earth might know the hand of the Lord. God never intended that Israel alone be blessed by this event. God expected this event to be such that the world would be reminded of who he was. How powerful he was. How honorable he was. How worthy of their praise he was. As a matter of fact, he goes on to say here, he says, that ye might fear the Lord your God forever. That you'll take a position of of humility, that you'll exalt and magnify and glorify God forever and ever and ever. Listen, I didn't just do this so that you could be more comfortable on the other side. I didn't do this so that your children would have a better, brighter future. I didn't do this just because you would then have the kind of possessions that you've always dreamed of and wanted. No, I did this for me. That's what he's saying. I did it for me, not for you. I did it for me. And of course, you will benefit, but I'm the one who will be recognized throughout the world. I'm the one that will be honored throughout the world. I'm the one that will be feared. It's about me. Now, they were the benefactors of God's work, but that was not done for them specifically. It was done for him. It was all about God. All about God. You say, what's this message then? Well, I have a simple thought here. Think about that Red Sea. And if you would go back and you study it, you see them being under bondage in Egypt. And as they come forth out of Egypt, they're confronted with a Red Sea. Behind them, the enemies of God pursuing. We see Moses being instructed by God to raise that rod. And as he raises that rod, the Red Sea parts and the people go through on dry ground. 
as the enemy pursues, the waters recede and the enemy is destroyed. And Israel is saved. That is a picture of your salvation and mine today. And now we come to a Jordan River. Their salvation has already been provided. In that regard, we see salvation. But now we come to the Jordan and entering into a promised land. The reason they did not make it to the promised land originally was because of their rebellion and their disobedience to God. But now they have yielded, surrendered, and submitted to His authority. And as a result, He dries that Jordan River up and they go through on dry ground into the promised land. The land that God had promised. A land of blessing. A land flowing with milk and honey. A land that He had all along desired for them. A picture of our sanctification. Entering into this promised land, the Christian life, and how it ought to be. One of submission, one of separation, one of supply, one of even success in that regard. Experiencing the presence and the power of God and knowing it and enjoying the blessings of it all. But even your salvation and even your sanctification is not so that your life can be easier or better just simply for you. It really is about Him. It's all about Him. Because when the world looks at you, when your husband or wife looks at you, when your family looks at you, they ought to see not you, but Him. He ought to be elevated. He ought to be magnified. He ought to be glorified. You owe Him that. And so do I. We owe Him that. Not one of us crossed the Red Sea or entered into the promised land in our Christian life because God just simply wanted to make our life better. Simply wanted to give us an escape route out of hell. Simply wanted to make us more comfortable in the life we live. He did it for Him. It's all about Him still. Now that grates us as Americans. That just goes right through us like a knife as Americans. Because we are the most entitled people in the world. We believe we are owed success. We are owed prosperity. We are owed comfort. We are owed this and owed that. And that God, we deserve it. And we, if we're going to obey God, God, deserve, we deserve for His blessing to be in our life. We deserve His favor in our life. That's the kind of people we are. If I'll do this, then God, I expect this. But see, God never did anything primarily for just you and I. It's always for Him. You say, that's selfish. Well, then you become God and do whatever you want. But I'm going to tell you this much. What is man that thou art even mindful of him? Do you realize how wretched and sinful and how separated from God we really are? Do you really understand that we deserve absolutely nothing but to be cast into hell a thousand times over? To even think that that God who created the universe and ultimately cre allowed us to be born and exist in this life, to think that He would even give us a moment time, is beyond comprehension, is it not? So it wasn't just about bringing Israel into a place of rest. It wasn't just about bettering their future prospects or providing a better and happier ex existence for them. No, it was primarily about God Himself. It was about elevating and magnifying and glorifying Him. It was about God receiving His just desserts. It was about God being praised and worshipped as He deserves. This was about serving the world notice that God is and that He deserves and demands their adoration and their allegiance. We come to David and Goliath. A very familiar passage again. Probably the greatest passage. One that even the lost world knows about, has heard about. Turn to 1 Samuel chapter 17, please. 1 Samuel chapter 17. In this passage, we're going to note a few things as well. Now bear with me. Don't shut me down. First uh, Samuel chapter 17. Notice verse 3. We note the stalemate that's taking place here. 
And the Philistines stood on a mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side, and there was a valley between them. On one side of the valley, we have the Philistines. On the other side of the valley, we have Israel. We have a stalemate here. These are Israel's arch enemies. There's bad blood here. This is not going to be resolved by simply meeting together in the valley and discussing their differences. It's going to come to blows. Notice the stakes in chapter 17. We see the stalemate, but note the stakes in chapter 17, verse 8 and 9. And he stood and cried. This is, of course, Goliath. He stood and cried unto the armies of Israel and said unto them, Why are ye come out to set your battle in array? And not I, a Philistine, and ye servants of Saul? Choose you a man for you, and let him come down to me. And he be able to fight with me, if he be able to fight with me, and to kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then shall ye be our servants and serve us. Okay, let's not involve the, bat, the, 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 the whole army. Let's just bring your champion and me out here in the middle. And whoever wins takes all. Winner take all. Man, those are some pretty high stakes. I mean, really think about this for a minute. If, if I defeat him and kill him, then ye will serve us. Let's send David. Are you kidding me? Think about that for a minute. All right. We have somebody that comes in and says, Pastor, I'm going to either annihilate the whole congregation or I'm willing to fight one man in your congregation. And if I win, then I will do what I want with the rest of the congregation. And if he wins, then you can do whatever you want with me. Stand up, would you please? Yeah, come on over Here is our champion. Our champion. Would you think that's a good idea? You want to know why I didn't do it? Because that ain't a good idea either. I don't even want to be out there with him. We're talking about David now. Ruddy little David. Thank you, sir. I'm not here to embarrass you. I'm telling you, I'd be in the same boat you are. I wouldn't be doing that. I mean, I know that I'm a kung fu expert. <laughs> and I've given Charles, I, and, and I gave Charles Atlas some tips later on in life. I understand all that, but I still wouldn't feel qualified to do that. We see these are some pretty high stakes. Again, note the shock, though. This is great. I love the shock. And I'm talking about David's shock. David is shocked. He's out, shocked out of his mind. Look at chapter 17, verse 23 through 26. It says, And he, as, as he talked with them, behold, there came up the champion. David's talking now with the men, the, the men of war, these, these soldiers. And while he's talking with them, there came up the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath, by name, out of the armies of the Philistines, and spake according to the same words. And David heard them. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were sore afraid. The men of Israel said, Have ye seen this man that is come up? Surely to defy Israel is he come up. And it shall be that the man who killeth him, the king will enrich him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David spake to the men that stood by him, saying, What shall be done to the man that killeth this Philistine and taketh away the reproach for Israel from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? David goes on to say in verse 29, after Eliab, his brother, accuses him of being prideful. What have I now done? Is there not a cause? I mean, David is so shocked at the response of these men to this uncircumcised Philistine. As he berates their God and as he berates their nation. As he makes little the men themselves that have trained their whole lives as soldiers and says, you're a bunch of little nothings. You little scaredy cats. And it's interesting to me. What'd they say? Have you seen 
the man? Do you know that, I don't know, did David see him or just hear him? I'm not so sure David ever saw him before he said what he said. I'm not so sure. Do you know what happens to us sometimes? We see the problem before we see anything else. David only heard him defying Israel and the God of Israel. And he said, I don't care who he is. That don't fly. Notice the stone. Chapter 17, verse 49. And David put his hand in the bag and then took a fence of stone and slang it. I like how he slang it. And I'd like to have fun with that word a while. But anyway, and smote the Philistine in the forehead, in his forehead, that the stone sunk into his forehead, and he fell upon his face to the earth. Wow. Now finally, look at the statement that's made now, just before he defeats Goliath. Look what he says. Verse 46. We have two warring factions. We have the future of Israel at stake. We have a young man whose faith has placed him before a giant. So, of course, God's got to come through, right? It's all about Israel, right? It's all about David and his faithfulness. It's all about rewarding the young man for stepping up when he could have easily stepped out. Well, let's see what David even himself says. This day, verse 46, will the Lord deliver thee into my hand because I've been faithful. And Israel deserves to be delivered from these enemies upon which they have been... Oh, wait. That's not what he says, does he? He says, This day will the Lord deliver thee into my hand, and I will smite thee and take thine head from thee, and I will give the carcasses of the host of the Philistines this day under the fowl of the air and the wild beast of the earth. Why? Why, David? Why will this take place? Why will God do this? That all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Wait a second. You didn't do that for David? You didn't do that for Israel? Of course Of course they were the benefactors. But that's not the real primary reason. He did that that all the earth may know there's a God in Israel. He did that so that he would be elevated. He did that so that he would be glorified. He did that so that he would be exalted. He permitted them in that situation under those circumstances so that he could come through and ultimately say, Hey, listen, I'm putting you on notice, mankind. I want you to see who God really is. It is me, the God of Israel. So wait a second, you mean, you mean to tell me it wasn't just simply about saving Israel from the Philistines or about rewarding a young man's faith? It wasn't about sparing many families the grief of lost loved ones? That's not what this was about. Those are all things that took place and all of the benefits of, 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 of what God decided to do. But no, this was primarily about God himself. This was about, again, elevating, magnifying, glorifying Him. This was about God receiving His just desserts. It was about God being praised and worshipped as He deserves. This was about serving the world notice again that God is and that He deserves and demands their adoration and allegiance. Finally, we think about the three Hebrew children. The three Hebrew children. We have... In Daniel chapter 3, and I'm going to move quickly on this, because I want to get to the message. But we have these three Hebrew children, and you know what happens here? Nebuchadnezzar erects this large image. Many believe that it was an image of himself. Ninety feet tall, nine feet wide. Notice the demand in chapter 3 of the book of Daniel. Notice the demand here. Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3, verse 4 through 6. Six. Notice it says here. Then a herald cried out to you, uh, aloud, To you it is commanded, O people, nations, and languages, that at that time you hear the sound of the coronet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, dulcimer, and all kind of music. Ye fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king hath set up. Hey, that's demanded. And whosoever falleth not down and worship shall the same hour be cast into a midst of a burning, fiery furnace. 
There you go. You have no choice about it. When you hear that music, you get on your knees. You better fall. Here's the, here's the idol. Here's the statue. Here's Nebuchadnezzar, if you will. You go ahead and you bow. And if you don't, you're going to a fiery furnace. That's, that's, that's a demand. But we see the dedication of these young men in chapter 3, verse 12. The Bible tells us over there in verse 12, it says, There are certain Jews whom thou hast set over the affairs of the province of Babylon. These weren't just nameless men. They were set over the affairs of Babylon. They had positions in the kingdom. They had something to lose. It goes on to say, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these men, O king, have not regarded thee. They serve not thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. And those are some dedicated men of God. And we note the decision, and we know what their decision was. Hey, listen, king, whether or not we pass through the fire or not, whether or not God saves us or not, whether or not we die or not, the fact is we're not going to bow to you. We're not going to bow to your idols. We're going to stand for Jesus. And we see the deliverance in chapter 3, verse 26. Even Nebuchadnezzar is looking down in that fiery furnace eventually. And it's so hot, of course, remember, that even those that threw them into the fire burned up. So he's, I'm sure, standing back a ways. But he sees in there, whether it's down or in. Some have said it's just in the fire. So obviously they threw them in. So he's way back there going. He says, did we not throw three in there? There's a fourth. It looks like, the, it's like this. Who is that? We know who it was. And let me tell you something. We see the deliverance and we note the deliverance. And before it's over with, he says, hey, fellas, come on out of there. Well, thanks, King. We're just going to kick back and take it easy a while. But I guess we're going to have to resume life now. Have to get back to things. Note the difference. Verse 28. Note the difference in verse 28 of chapter 3. Then Nebuchadnezzar spake and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Isn't that something? Who has sent his angel and delivered his servants that trusted in him and have changed the king's word and yielded their bodies that they might not serve nor worship any god except their own god. And so he ultimately makes a decree now. He has a changed mind. Why? Because of what transpired and took place. Notice the decree now in verse 29. Therefore, I make a decree that every people, nation, and language which speak anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces and their houses shall be made a dunghill because there is no other God that can deliver after this sort. Wait a second. Did I not read that right? I think I did. He says here, I'd make a decree that every people, nation, and language. That's interesting, isn't it? You mean this reached beyond a fiery furnace? You mean this went past just Babylon itself? It went, yes, around the world. It was, it was every single nation that was affected by Babylon. And they were the world leader in that day. Let me tell you something. This decree affected everybody. This decree affected the world. This decree said, listen, there's a God. And that God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is unlike any other God. So what was this about then? Is it about humbling the king and trying to help him find his way? Is that what it's all about, really? Is it about keeping the Hebrew children safe and comfortable in the midst of a fire? Is it about proving that you don't mess around with God's people? I think all of those things we could say, yeah, well, it certainly accomplished that. But that's not really why it was all done. That's not really the real purpose for it. This was primarily, again, about God himself. This was about elevating and magnifying and glorifying God. This was about God revealing, uh, uh, I mean, receiving his just desert and his just reward. It was about God being praised and worshipped as he deserves. This was about serving the world notice that God is and that he deserves and demands their adoration and allegiance. You see that? See, in each situation, we basically learn the same thing. God, who created all things, wants his entire creation to know him, obey him, and adore him. 
It's always about God. Turn, if you would, to Revelation 4.11. This is the conclusion and it's the message. Revelation 4.11. Now, the conclusion lasts for about an hour and a half. No, I'm teasing it. It doesn't. But notice what it says here. Revelation 4.11. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. Notice the Bible tells us that He is worthy to receive glory and honor and power. He is worthy. He is worthy. He is worthy. May I say that He is worthy whether or not He does one thing for me? He's still worthy. He is worthy whether He does one thing for you or your family either. He is worthy because He is God. He is Creator. And He deserves our adoration and our affection. He deserves our submission and our surrender. He deserves that because He is God. He is holy and righteous and He is God. He deserves that. It says, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Again, that rubs us wrong in America. That really bothers us. It seems to me that this God who created me then is a pretty selfish being. It's all about Him. Well, let's just be honest. Isn't your life all about you? Oh, no, it isn't. Oh, no, it has nothing to do with me. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, you're the exception to the rule. Yeah. I suppose if your wife was cheating on you and you know what the Bible teaches about some things, you would just go ahead and say, ah, we'll work it out, God. It's all on you. I don't care about how I feel or what's I'm going through. It doesn't matter about me at all. It's always about others. And I'm just burdened because of where that's going to lead her and where it's going to do to her children and what it's going to do to our, the family. Not about me. I could care less. It's not about me at all. Come on, people. It is always about us. We are selfish. We are sinners. We are wretched. And we are nothing but unholy in the sight of a holy God. And we are so quick to make demands of God today. When in reality, whether we died and spent a thousand years in hell and a thousand lives in hell, we ought to be still serving God and surrendering to God and loving and, an adorate, and, and being adorated to, and, and loving God no matter what. Because He is who He is. And He's worthy. See, the need is great among the lost, without a doubt. But the lost are not why we invest thousands each year and so much effort and energy around the world. That's not why we do it. We do not go to the world for the sake of the heathen. We go to the world for Christ's sake. They deserve hell. That's what they deserve, just like we do. But Jesus loves them. Just like He loves us. He endured the agonies of hell for them. And they didn't deserve. They don't deserve heaven. We don't go there to make their life more comfortable. We don't go there so that they can escape hell. We don't go there for that reason primarily. You know why we go to the heathen? You know why we try to reach out with the gospel? Because it's for His sake. It's for His glory. It's for Jesus Christ that we do it. And He is worthy. He's worthy of it. Jesus deserves them because He died for them. And He doesn't send us out there for them. He sends us out there for Him, Himself. And, he, and that's why we go. You don't knock on doors simply because, well, if people are dying and going to hell, and if I want to make their life better, and I want to make their eternity better, then i got to get saved. No, we go there because He is worthy of their praise and their adoration. And they are worthy of hell, but he loved them anyway. And so we go because he loves them. We go because he cares. We go because he demands. We go because he sends us to a world that's lost so that they can ultimately bring pleasure to the God who created them. Because in a lost state, no man can please God. No woman can either. And it's all about him. It's so that the world can recognize him for who he is, creator. So they can recognize him for who he is. God of the universe and the rightful possession of mankind. No man, no woman has a right to defy Him. None of us have that right. He is righteous and He is holy. 
And He demands and deserves our total and complete allegiance and alliance. If you listen carefully, you can hear the Savior say this. Do I not deserve the reward of my sufferings? Don't I deserve those for whom I died? You know what the result is when we go because we're just doing it for the betterment of others? We get discouraged because they reject Him. Because they do not recognize Him for who He is and what He is. And we say, wait a second, I'm wasting my time out here. I'm wasting my time in Africa and I'm wasting my time in Europe and I'm wasting my time around the world and I'm wasting my time right in Akron, Ohio because they won't hear and they don't want to hear. They want nothing to do with God. But we don't go for them. We go for Him. Because He loved them. We go for Him. Because He died and suffered and bled for us and them. We go for Him. It's always about Him so that the world can know Him for who and what He really is. God. Having a right to demand our adoration and our love and our obedience. The mission of missions isn't simply to win the lost and spare them the agonies of hell. But instead it's about a Savior who endured the awful punishment of sin on a cross. Who ultimately suffered, bled, and died to redeem fallen man. Mankind is sinful and wicked. And that includes me and that includes you. And one of us deserves one moment in the presence of God or in the presence of heaven. We deserve to go to hell. How sad it is today to present a gospel message and people just flippantly receive the Lord as an escape right out of hell. Never once recognizing their own wretchedness. Never realizing how in depth And how in debt they are to a God who loved them in spite of their wretchedness. And I believe today in many Christians' lives we're in the same boat. Everything's about my happiness. Everything's about my life. Everything's about my future. Everything's about me, me, me. And we lose sight of what is most important. It's all Him. Revelation 5.11 says, And I beheld and heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beast and the elders and the number of them that was ten thousand times ten thousand and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under earth and such as are in the sea and all that are there in them heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto Him that sitteth upon the throne and upon and unto the Lamb forever and ever. That's what it's about right there. This is why we go. So that the God of heaven, the creator of the universe, the worthy Lamb of God that was slain to receive that in, before the foundation of the world for us, we are there indebted to Him. And we recognize that He deserves the power and the riches and the wisdom, the strength, the honor, the glory and the blessing. He's everything. And He's all in all. And that's what missions is really about. Magnifying Him. Elevating Him. I want you to invest and I want you to be involved in missions here. For Christ's sake. Not just for results. Not just for a clear conscience. Not just to receive a blessing or favor from God. But because He's worthy. He's worthy. Of every sacrifice we could make after the sacrifices He made on our behalf. How could we ever question Him? Whatever He does, however He works, however He moves, He is righteous and He is just. And deserves our adoration, our love, and our obedience. Sure, the heathen and the lost need rescued from hell. But may we give for His sake. And if we will do that, we will never feel like we've been taken advantage of. 
or that our efforts are wasted or that somehow somebody dissed us. We did all this for you and you did nothing in return for it. Wait a second. We never did it for anybody but him. And that'll fix it all because he is worthy. What about you? Are you saved today? Do you know Christ? May I ask you, friend, how do you see yourself today? Do you want to know why so many people come to an altar like this, profess salvation, and we never see a turn in their life? It's because in many cases they came to get instead of give what he rightly deserves them. Whether you send me to hell or not, I'm going to serve you and I'm going to love you and I'm going to give you my all because you are worthy of it. That ought to be the cry of every believer. Not what are you going to do for me now? What are you going to do for me? No, it's what can we do for him in that regard? It's never about us. It's about him. Always about him. May we focus our attention on Him today as a church and as families, as husbands and wives. May we help our families to learn that He alone is worthy. Father, we come to You. We ask, Lord, that You'd help us, Lord, to be found faithful to You as a people. And